if you will, cast your minds back with me a couple of weeks. Um, it might be painful, but if you can recall the fallout from England losing to Wales at the Rugby and the Rugby World Cup, uh, please come with me there. Um, you, you, you might remember the match, I'm sure many of us do, on the weekend away. Um, the thing, though, that was striking for me was an interview the next day with the England coach, Stuart Lancaster. Uh, it was fascinating. Have a look on the screen and you'll see the key word as you see a screen grab from that interview. You see, in large part, he was talking about unity. You might remember it had all gone wrong on the pitch. They had thrown away a 10-point lead. Uh, team selection was probably wrong, particularly the centres. They had given away penalty after penalty after penalty after penalty. They had made some, I think, wrong calls in the last few minutes, whether to kick or not. But it was striking what Stuart Lancaster was concerned about as the tournament continued was the unity of the team for the upcoming games. Why? Well, why does it matter? Because as soon as a team is split and forming factions, as soon as there's division in the ranks, well, you might as well give up and head home. It's game over. As the saying goes, and to be honest, it's often our family parenting strategy, divide and conquer. And what seems to be the situation in that next little section in Philippians that we're in this morning? 1 verse 27 through to 2 verse 11. It seems that there are external pressures on the church pressing in and creating internal divisions. And that matters because this is not just a game. This is bigger than rugby. The, the stakes are far higher. When, when churches divide, when the unifying work of Christ on the cross is in, in some sense undone in a local church community, when they cease to function as God planned for them to function, then that detracts from the gospel. And Christians are great at dividing. Have a little think about what you, what you like or dislike about Morden Road Church. Or maybe about your home church. Some of you will probably think there should be more singing. Some of you will probably think there should be less singing. Some of you think it should be newer songs led from a guitar. Some of you think it should be older songs led from a piano. Some of you think perhaps that women should preach more. Some of you think that women shouldn't preach. Some of you think that God is utterly sovereign and in charge and he chooses people to be his. And some of you think actually we choose God. Some of you think it's fine to baptise babies. Some of you think it probably isn't. Some of you think we should definitely go for the Irving building up the road. Some of you think we probably shouldn't. Some of you might think we should have more charismatic type spiritual gifts in church. Some of you might even think they don't even exist anymore. Some of you think one version of the Bible is the best version and the only version and you feel very passionately about that. And some of you don't know what they're getting upset about. Some of you have a favourite Christian author, and others haven't even heard of them, or can't stand them. And the list goes on and on and on, and some of us even supported England in the rugby, and some of us supported whoever England were playing against. (laughs) 
And I guess each of them and many, many more are opportunities for, for division. Opportunities to divide as a church. I have to say, in my experience, one of the brilliant things about Magdalen Road is, is this unity that we do enjoy. We are relatively mixed and diverse. We, it's part of our deliberate vision, our deliberate culture as a church. We think the gospel is broad and should unite a whole kinds of people from all kinds of places, with all kinds of backgrounds, all kinds of stories. And I think we are pretty united, but it's something to be thankful to God for and not take for granted. It's humbling, I think, on a Sunday or through the week to hear of different people from different places caring for each other. It's a testament to what God is doing among us. But it's hard. Isn't it hard to love each other well, particularly people who aren't really like us? And especially, perhaps, when life gets tricky. When the pressure's on, when you're not in a good place. Isn't it easy just to turn inward? And just to focus on self and look after number one and, and even to lash out at others. When there's pressure pushing in on the outside, isn't it easy to divide within? And so as we look at these verses, I think what Paul wants to say to the Christians in Philippi and to us, really three things. From 127 to 30, we're going to say, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of Jesus. How are we to do that? Well, 2, 1 to 4, we're to keep loving and serving one another. And why are we to do that? Well, 2, 5 to 11, because Jesus loved and served you. Conduct yourselves manner in a worthy, in a manner worthy. Keep loving and serving one another. Why? Because Christ loved and served you. So firstly then, I want to say always conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of Jesus. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they'll be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it's been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. You see verse 30, do you see the principle? Just as, just as Paul was suffering and the gospel was advanced, that was last week, well, so he wants that principle to be the same for the church in Philippi. That is the lesson that he wants them to learn from his life. Just as Paul was going through hardships, yet the gospel was ringing out. The Lord was doing his work. So, Philippi, that's for you too. How are they suffering? Well, verse 28, do you see there are those who oppose them? Verse 29, it's been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Philippians, you are walking like Jesus. It's been granted to you. He, he suffered, you suffer. But Paul's concern really is what happens next. How do they respond to that kind of opposition? 
I think the first one that he picks up in 27 is, is asking the question, will, will they simply compromise? Will they, will they blend in? Will they be the same as everyone else? You, you know that pressure when, when life gets tricky, when it's hard to be a Christian, you just be a little bit less different. Perhaps just keep your mouth shut a bit more. Perhaps just look like everyone else a bit more. But Paul says, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. The closer translation is actually, exercise your citizenship in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Why Why use that kind of language, Paul? What are you getting at? Well, it, Philippi in Greece, as we'd say today, was a Roman colony. It was an outcrop of Rome. It was geographically somewhere else. It was about 800 miles east of where Rome was. It was AD, and it was 31 BC, Battle of Actium. Emperor Augustus transports large numbers of Roman veterans to this colony, this new colony. It's a legitimate status. They were Romans. They live in Philippi, but they're Romans. Town full of Roman citizens who, in a sense, were from somewhere else. They were living in a town that was their home, but but it wasn't their home. They were surrounded by people who were like them, but weren't really like them. While so, Christians in Philippi, you're different. You're a citizen from elsewhere. It's later on as well in 3 verse 20, when he says, our citizenship is in heaven. Christians, whatever the opposition, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of Jesus. Remember who you really are. Remember who you really belong to and live in line with that. Christians, you are citizens from another country. And we're at home here, but we're not really. That might be of particular relevance to you if you're new to Oxford. We know this time of year we have a number of people visiting us, new people who are settling in Oxford, looking for churches perhaps. Maybe it's working out what it means to be a Christian in the context in Oxford that the Lord has called you. Perhaps at university or in a new workplace. And everyone else bows the knee to Caesar. Well, you bow the knee to Jesus. You have a different master. And everyone else is getting drunk and you stay sober. And everyone else loves to gossip and backbite. Well, you, you speak words of grace. And everyone else is complaining and moaning and whinging about everything the whole time. You, you learn contentment. You learn that you have a father who loves you. Or, or whatever the pressure is for you, however that translates into your week, to your context. Whatever happens, we're to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. And you see, the excuse while everyone else is doing it doesn't work. Because we're not like everyone else. Because we're different. So that seems to be a first concern. Are they going to compromise? Are they going to be different? Are they going to, they're just going to blend in. Like everyone else. They're going to remember where they're from. And the second question, as we've said already, is are they going to divide? Are they going to turn on each other as the pressure comes from outside? And we've said in previous weeks, early signs aren't really great. 
Do you remember, start of chapter 4, two prominent women in the church, Yodia and Syntyche, seem to be scrapping. Maybe there are cracks beginning to show. Maybe this is why Paul has to talk about unity so much in chapter 2. How is Paul going to help the Philippians to be unified? How does Paul help us to maintain unity despite being diverse? What's the answer? Verse 1 to 4, keep loving and serving one another. What's the answer? Humility. It's being humble. You know this, when you're feeling proud and hard-hearted and stubborn and you won't listen, when we stand on our rights, when we put ourselves first in an argument, then we divide But do you see it there, verses 3 and 4? They're extraordinary. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. The contrast for the opponents from last week, do you remember 117? They, do you see, they've preached Christ out of selfish ambition. Paul says to the church in Philippi, Be humble. Isn't that hard? It's hard because in everyday life, our knee-jerk reaction is me. What about me? How come no one notices what I've contributed? How come no one asks me? How come no one listens to me? How come no one thanks me? And Paul turns it on his head and says, do you know what your new mantra, it's not about me. It's about them. It's always valuing others. Always putting the interests of others first. That's not just a question of then gritting your teeth. Of, of being as humble as we can be. I must be more humble. No, it's, it's giving out of what you've been given. God has been generous to us, so we're generous with others. It's The answer to our forgetfulness and our proud hearts is a daily, daily remembering what he's done for us, the depths of his kindness to us. It was, um, it was Zoe's birthday last week. And imagine someone buys you a box of chocolates and, and friends come around and there are three chocolates left. Do you get the box of chocolates out or not? Because you know they're going to want them. It feels difficult. What do you do in this situation? Can you share your chocolates with them? Do I have to? Seriously? I might just pop them back in the drawer. And then you notice, looking at the box, it looks a bit thicker than you thought it was. And you thought it was just the packaging, but actually, there's a whole second layer. It's extraordinary. Everyone gets a chocolate. You thought the chocolates were drying up. You thought you were almost finished, but the chocolate giver was generous to you. More generous than you thought. You've got chocolates coming out of your ears. Everyone can have a chocolate. Well, so it is with God. We've got bags and bags and bags of grace. More than we know what to do with unending supplies of grace that he pours upon us. And he's not stingy. It's not something we have to unpick his fingers from. He pours grace on us. And we share it around. And we love one another. So have a look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2. Therefore, if you have any encouragement 
from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Layer after layer after layer of grace. The abundant kindness of God. Now just Magdalen Road, share it around. You haven't got to be stingy with our grace to one another. Because our Father is not stingy with his grace to us. Because of our being united with Christ, that means we're joined to him as we trust him. As we have faith in him. His death is our death. His life is our life or of being of comfort from his love, or of sharing in the Spirit, then give out of what you've received and be united. Because of all you have in Christ, be united. There was a time, a time literally when we thought the universe revolved around us, when, when the earth was at the center of, of our reality. Then after Galileo, we, we saw how wrong we were. Well, so... So as we become Christians, no longer does our life revolve around us. It it revolves around Christ and his people. And so we serve. We serve him. We, We serve those he's given to us. But isn't there a bit of you that says, well, that sounds nice on a Sunday morning. But I know by Monday morning, when the rubber hits the road, and I'm brutally honest, I'm not sure I can do that. Or if I'm brutally, brutally honest, I'm not even sure I really want to do that. I want life. I don't want to have to be thinking about them the whole time, and others, and focusing on their needs, and doing what they say. It sounds, it sounds demeaning. It sounds humiliating. It sounds like some kind of power trip going on. Where is the me time in this? When do I get what I want? What's the answer? It's a very honest statement. It's, I suspect one that if we're honest, we can associate with some other time. The answer is Jesus. He is the antidote to thinking that we can't do it. He is the antidote to thinking that it will be demeaning for us to live like that. To think of their needs before our own needs. He is the antidote. Paul says, keep loving and serving one another. Why? Because Jesus loved and served you. Verse 5 to 11. Familiar verses for many of us, I'm sure. This little ancient hymn it seems to be. Let me read Those verses again to us. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven 
and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Here is the pattern for Christian living. Here is the example of how to cope under pressure and trials with opponents. Here is the way to maintain unity in churches. It's obvious to say, but this is not just a theory. This is how we relate to each other. This is how you relate to people within this room and those who couldn't be here this morning. It's very practical. It's not about programs or courses or formal stuff, but it's, it seems the underlying assumption, verse 5, is that they will be a family. They will relate to each other. The people we rub shoulders with and spend time with them We're just involved in each other's lives. I know that's hard for some. But it seems that Paul expects us to to be in that kind of a family together, a church family. I don't want to push this too hard, but I assume it's not just the people we like either. It's quite easy to serve the people who are like us or we're quite fond of the ones that we love lots. But the point is real unity, considering others above ourselves, looking to each other's needs, is harder with the people that we naturally don't gel with, the people we're tempted maybe to kind of avoid. But that's when we get division in church. How do you do that? How do you relate to people in that kind of a way? Well, Paul says it, it starts off by how you think. Verse 5, by having the same mindset as Christ Jesus. That's where the gospel humility comes from. Be of one mind, verse 2. Be like-minded, verse 2. And so how, verse 5, by having a Christ mindset. Which I'm going to say for me is not natural. It's a decision that I need to make. It's the intentional, deliberate, chosen thing. It's Maybe it's Sunday morning on the horizon and or I'm going to meet for coffee with someone or, or better still, the whole week round thinking to be deliberate and to serve. To have that Jesus-type attitude of mind as I wake up in the morning. Lord, help me today to have the mindset of Christ. Not asking what can I get, but, but what can I give? How can I serve? How can I help? I'm ashamed to say my knee-jerk reaction far too easily, and especially when life is hard, is to be selfish and just think about me. Isn't my life hard? What can I get out of this? How can people serve me? But I think that's wrong. I hate that about me. If our lives were a stick of rock and Paul were to chop us anywhere, anywhere at all, in any situation, there ought to be submission and humility that comes with the Jesus mindset. And that that thing that's to characterize us, wherever you chop us, it's going to look different in our different ages and stages, our different contexts and situations. If, if you're here as a child, let me encourage you to, to submit to your parents, to be humble. Maybe you don't know it all. 
Maybe as a student, you get stuck into the CU and you relate to Christians from, from different backgrounds and different churches and different ideas about things. Be humble. Maybe in your marriage. Maybe at work with colleagues, those, those above you, but those below you as well. Those who answer to you. Maybe in, in church families, you relate to just different people. You relate to much older people or even to much younger people. Or people from different cultures or backgrounds. Different ways of doing things. Submit. Be humble. Serve. Love. Have the Jesus type attitude of mind. And what was it? What does it mean to have this mindset, verse 5, of Jesus' world? You see verse 6? It's extraordinary. Even though he had the right and was utterly entitled to be worshipped, and glorified. He could have claimed that. The one person in all of history, in all the world, who could claim that. But I take it because of the very nature of God, he did the opposite. What's he saying in verse 6? I think he's saying this. God, at his core, is three persons. Dynamic. He's, he's Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Loving, giving, others-centered. Reflecting glory to the others. The Father loves the Son who loves the Spirit, constantly putting aside self for the sake of the other. And so because he's God, because that's the kind of God we serve, so Jesus serves. That is his attitude of mind. It's extraordinary. This is who God is. He had every right to be worshipped and glorified, but because our God is a God who serves... So he serves us. It wasn't on last night, but it is, um, it's X-Factor season. And imagine with me, we, we finish the sermon, we sing our last song or two, and I do the kind of final finish-up bit, and I say there's tea and coffee over there, and when the tea and coffee hatch goes up, suddenly you see Simon Cow, And he's doing tea and coffee this week, and he's done home baking. It's glorious. And you're taken aback. There's not that kind of gap before we all go and queue up. Everyone's trying to queue up and say hi. to. You say, hi, uh, you're kind of important. Um, Hello, sir. And he says, oh, it's fine. Call me, call me Cy. Call me, call me Cowley. Um, which is appropriate for this area, isn't it? Anyway. Um, in fact, maybe forget that. Forget Simon Cowell serving us tea and coffee after church. Think... Think not Oxford, think, think India, think the city of Delhi, think mounds of rubbish, groups of people who live there on those rubbish tips, rag pickers, trying to find things that they can sell. The lowest of the lowest of the lowest of the low, scavenging for rubbish, things to salvage. Imagine Simon Cowell resigning his various positions on various X-factors all over the world, the roles he has managing music industry people, Selling up houses, I think, in Beverly Hills, Spain, London, and elsewhere, and going to live on the rubbish dumps in Delhi. Helping there. Can you imagine that? That's not even getting close to what Jesus has done for us. It's nowhere near. He puts aside his rights. He humbles himself. He puts aside his position and power and authority and glory, and he humbles himself for you. It's incredibly costly, isn't it? 
He's not like us. We're quite good at doing a bit of serving if it doesn't cost too much, if, if we're doing okay, especially, especially if we like it, and especially, especially, especially if people get to see us. And yet this, the extent of Jesus' obedience and service is astounding. See it there in verse 8, verse 7 and verse 8. He, if you imagine it as the Nike tick, I've spoken about this before, but imagine you go down and then up. And we've got four enormous steps down. He takes on the human nature. He becomes a servant. He dies. And he dies on a cross, so he becomes a curse. Deuteronomy 21, verse 23. Four enormous steps down from glory. And he finds himself cursed by the perfectly just and holy God, punished for our sins, punished Punished instead of you and instead of me. Why? Why would Jesus do this? There's a huge irony. It's, he humbles himself because of our pride. Do you see, our pride is always finally directed against God. Just like Adam and Eve at the beginning, we always envy God's position. We always think we know best. We will always do things our way. We're proud. We deserve to be humbled by God. But the wonder of the gospel is Jesus takes our place and is humbled because of our pride. He steps down and down and down and down. And he faces our curse. It's funny. Even then, though, our pride could be such a barrier to us grasping God's solution to our pride. We don't like grace. We don't like to receive. Maybe you're here this morning, you wouldn't call yourself a believer, and you, perhaps you, you get something of that. Let me read to you. It's a letter from a, an author who became a Christian later on, but he wasn't when he wrote this a guy called Sheldon Van Oyken. He was writing to C.S. Lewis back in the 20th century. And he says this. He says, There is nothing in Christianity which is so repugnant to me as humility, as the bent knee. If I knew beyond hope or despair that Christianity were true, my fight forever after would have to be against the pride of the spine may break, but it never bends. He won't bow the knee. He wouldn't bow the knee. He did, eventually. You see, because of our pride, Jesus humbly walks the road for us. And so it is his humility that is to mark us. The first step of humility is simply taking what he gives to us, which is himself, the gift of him, life in him. But then it's the daily pattern. It's every morning. It's when we say, we, we can't serve today. We, we can't, I, I don't want to put the chairs away. I don't want to tidy up after lunch. I don't want to sort out rotors or I don't want to prep for teaching children or serve my kids or have them round for dinner or go to that prayer meeting or give money away or invite my friends to this. When we say we can't do it, Paul says, do you know it's what you were made for? You can do it. 
This is to be your mindset. You are to follow in the footsteps of your king. And don't think from this, please, Jesus is out to crush you and to put you in your place. Do you see see the surprise? Humility and service is, is liberating. To serve is to be like him. And to be like him is what we were made for. And it's not an aimless drudge, a road without end. It's the road to glory. The, the Nike tick has, has finished and is going back up again. Verse 9, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It, it didn't end in a funeral. It ended in a coronation. Jesus' humility leads to a throne as the Father crowns him King of Kings. He, he gives away his glory only to be given it back again. And so, verse 10, there will one day be absolute, final, total and utter unity because everybody will bow the knee to King Jesus. And do you see how it ends, verse 11? God the Father does the glorifying. It's for his glory. If the central character in verses 6 to 8 is Jesus, he considers and humbles and submits. In verse 9 to 11, it's, it's the Father in the spotlight now. On the way down through the tick, it's Jesus. And God the Father lifts and exalts and raises him. And I take it that's us. My heart, your heart, as Bex was teaching the children, is so often to look for glory, to be remembered, to be the first person who... And we look for power and prestige. We look for people to notice us. We want to be famous. We want to leave a legacy. We want to be remembered and admired. But do you see from these verses, greatness in the kingdom is not about being remembered or admired or leaving a legacy or or knowing the answers in a Bible study or or seeming impressive or or thought through or eloquent or the books that we read or the books that we write. The Jesus-type humility that we're to have is how we think of others, to have the mindset of Christ, how we serve them, how we follow his example, how we walk in the footsteps of our crucified king. That that is greatness. That is greatness. And that is what keeps proud churches unified, humbled, looking to him.